when we talk about trying to solve this problem, this isn't about whether or not a kid should go to this kind of college or that kind of college or four-year versus two-year versus whatever. It's really about what is the role, what is society's perspective, what is the United States' perspective on education and how important this plays in skilling and reskilling the future, right? We've talked now about the fact that every single job on the planet is going to be reskilled. So we need to rethink what learning looks like and how we make learning accessible. And there's been a lot of conversations around universal basic income, but then there's another conversation around universal basic mobility, right? Giving people access to free transportation, giving people access to free education, giving people access to some of the building blocks that we need to be able to have a strong and healthy society. So I think there's a whole lot of questions that we should have around this and ways in rebuilding it and looking at places around the world that might be doing it more effectively than we are. The system we have right now is just not sustainable. Today's episode is brought to you guys by the Top 1% Podcast. We're living in a world where people are struggling to get by, over-medicating, and suddenly average is acceptable. Are you ready to get out of the survival mode and take your life to the next level? Hosted by Dr. Trevor Blattner, each week he interviews leaders in the fields of leadership, personal growth, and human potential to gain powerful insights on how to get to the top and create an awesome life. Previous guests include former VP of Walt Disney World, Lee Cockerell, world-renowned sports psychologist Ben Newman, and Dr. Jack Syke human behavior and potential expert, Dr. John Demartini, and high-performance coach, Jarek Robbins. Go ahead and subscribe to the Top 1% podcast. If you like Tim Ferriss, I'm sure you'll be glad you did. You probably know I'm big on biohacking and trying to make myself the best I can be. That's why I'm excited about what the guys at Neurohacker Collective and Daniel Schmachtenberger, who was previously on the podcast, are doing. They're some of the smartest biohackers on the planet, and their Qualia line of brain-enhancing nootropics make it obvious why. You guys can get 15% off any order, or with a subscription, 50% off and 15% off every future order by going to disruptors.fm slash qualia, that's Q-U-A-L-I-A, and using coupon code disruptors. At Disruptors, we're big on health and biotech. For a reason, it amplifies everything. Disruptors.fm slash qualia. Use coupon code disruptors. And now, let's get on with the program. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Today we're talking about education, politics, and the discussion on mental health and how all of these are kind of doing the same thing over and over and more or less leading us towards more and more insane roads. Today, we've got Nancy Giordino on the program. She's an entrepreneur, futurist, and consultant and a techno-optimist committed to building the societal structures and behaviors that help tech build a better future for all of us. She's been recognized as one of the top female futurists worldwide and built a career shaping and guiding a portfolio of $50 billion worth of global brands through her career. She's a free Frequent panelist at South by Southwest, produced the first ever career fair for the future. She's a guest lecturer at Singularity University and, and the world's first TEDx licensee. In today's episode, we'll discuss how Nancy thinks about the future of work, why the mental health epidemic is bigger than we think, and it's not just social media, the power of systemic thinking and how we can implement that into the rest of our world, why GDP is an awful measure of progress and how to replace it, what we can do to fix effed up politics, Ways to redesign education for the 21st century, 
and how we can engineer the future of our choosing rather than being pulled kicking and screaming into the future that none of us want, i.e. bulletproof in the Teslas. Today, it's a fun one. Nancy has a lot to add, and we do get into some mental health stuff, which is a bit more sensitive and I think incredibly important for people to talk about. These are the type of issues that everyone has. Everyone knows someone that's having issues. And if we're not doing a better job of serving humanity, serving each other, then what the hell are we doing? Before we jump into the episode, I wanted to thank you guys for listening to this. It really does mean a lot to me and the entire Disruptors team that you take the time to listen to these podcasts. If it's something you enjoy, if it's something meaningful for you, consider leaving a review. If you haven't subscribed yet, by the way, you should subscribe. You can find us in any major podcasting app, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, we're on YouTube. You can find us just about anywhere. So make sure you search the Disruptors. You might need to throw in my name, Matt Ward, in case you're new to the program, and subscribe. And if you love the show, consider leaving a review or sharing us with a friend. That word of mouth is incredibly important for us. We rely on you guys, our awesome listeners, to help us get the word out because this is pretty much a free program with very little advertising. We're trying to make it a little bit more sustainable with our Patreon model. And if you guys are interested in supporting us, disruptors.fm slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And now without further ado, I give you Nancy Giordano. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. There's a lot that I wanted to dive into, but I thought the the jumping off point would be the the future job fair. What do what does the world look like? Tell me a little bit about what you organized, the career fair for the future. Thank you. I love that topic. Uh, so what it was born from is a frustration, uh, two frustrations, right? One or concern and a frustration. The concern is that we're seeing a rise in anxiety amongst college and high school kids who are unsure about what the future looks like and their place in it. So there's a you know, a stack up in kids at the career offices, there's a stack up in kids in the mental health offices. And so what is a way that we can help kids get a better sense of what the future holds, right, how it's going to take shape, and ensure that they feel confident that they've got a place in it. One key place for that is at South by Southwest, where adults get to come and get that same kind of infusion, right? They pay a lot of money for a badge, and get to hear some of the most exciting conversations and get really refueled about what's possible and start to design their own futures around it. Um, Unfortunately, kids A, can afford the badge, or B, so many of the events around South by are alcohol-fueled. So even if there are really, really cool things that IBM does, or HP does, or Dell does, or McDonald's does, um, you can't take a teenager under 21 into any of those spaces. And so I decided, why don't we kind of create our own version then of something and make it really more focused, not just on the the things that are happening, but how they're applicable to work in the future. Go ahead. I was going to say, so we just created a day-long career fair for the future for college and high school kids. What are are the big focuses? Well, so what we did is we designed it um, very intentionally in a couple different ways. We did four pods around four themes that we thought were really important for um, thinking about the future and the future of work and career, which was the future of smart city living, the future of making and building, the future of paying and playing. So that's sort of a weird one. And then the future of medicine, self, and well-being. And you know, we had traditional content where we had panelists around each of those things, people that were in town for South by already that came to also talk to the kids. But then we also flipped it. So then half of that time was spent with the kids take, being taken through exercises around the future of work, migrating them from thinking about it as a job description to thinking about a role, to thinking about how they can tap into their own passions, both positive and negative, and how they then manifest into actually innovating and creating something. Like what would you design if you were given, you know, sort of free reign to design something based on all this that you've heard? And then the last thing we did is flipped it to do a curiosity panel where the kids then went up on stage after each of those sessions and talked about their own experiences in their groups and how this will um, 
spur them to be more curious and where they're going to learn more. And it was really fascinating, again, to hear teenagers talk about their take on when robots create robots, create robots, and what they think that means for them, right? Or what it is that they're actually really both relieved and inspired by, but also frustrated and fearful of as they look into this future that they're walking into. And so we designed it to be, like I say, voices from both the adults that are creating the future and the kids who are entering the future. How do you handle it when a lot of times their parents are telling them what the future should be? And almost always that future involves college, which may or may not be necessary depending on the field. How do, what's, the, what's the future of education work? It all kind of tangles together, but society has this white picket fence type vision. Right. Well, and I think what, you know, again, I've got three kids that are roughly in that age, right? So I have a 22-year-old, an 18-year-old, and a 15-year-old, and I've been going through the college searches now for the last four to five years and starting again. And what you see when you go to these campuses is how woefully unprepared they are for the future. So even if you say that you want your child to go to whatever the, you know, the schools are when you walk under those campuses and they don't have a VR lab and they've not a single, you know, vertical garden is being grown anywhere and they still operate very much in silos and kids can't take classes across different disciplines, you realize that they aren't very well prepared for the future. So that's one kind of alarming thing. And so a lot of what we talk to the kids about actually at the career fair is taking agency and designing your own, you know, curriculum outs- inside and outside of a school setting. So it's great if you get to go to a university and that's what you really want to go do. But even inside that program, you're going to have to supplement it with stuff outside of that program or, and, or you know, try and figure out how to break some rules across it. And then uh, regardless of whether or not you go to a four-year college or not, there are so many places of learning. There are so many ways to be able to feed the curiosity that you hopefully have still sparked and we haven't completely baked out of kids yet. And so a lot of it's about encouraging them to go find that. So whether that's you're doing, you know, an internship with someone or a conversation with someone, or you're going online and you're finding those classes, or whether or not you are, uh, you know, going to build something in play, like build a community of people that you can kind of learn with as you're trying to design something. There's lots of different ways to fuel that curiosity. So I think, but I do think number one is reminding kids that they actually have an, a curiosity, right? Feeding it and that they have an agency in, in uh, um, feeding it and in, in getting the information in the, the, the stuff that they want to learn more about. It's not going to just be handed to them in a syllabus, no matter where you go. Because if you give a mouse a cookie, yeah. might, he's going to go Well, and again, I mean, historically, I could rely on it. I went to a good school and I had a really great program and it did feed me all the stuff I needed to, f- to have. But I just think it's happening so fast now. And I don't think that the programs that currently exist, like I say, are in touch. And I think part of what's creating that anxiety for youth, in my opinion, is that they have some sense way down in the limbic system that what they're being you know, kind of channeled into is not preparing them well for the future. And it's, it's, yeah, and it's saddling them with debt, which will also hold them back. Yeah, to, you know, the kids who make that choice. And it's really scary. Again, like we went and talked to one university with my oldest son, and they were talking about the fact that families that don't have a lot of money are financing a $60,000 education per year, right? Per year. And, it's, you know, the kids and the families, you know, end up with two to $300,000 in debt to go to this one particular school because people thought that was so important. And the great news is I've raised pretty pragmatic children who, A, won't let me do that, and B, don't think that that's a good idea. So there are ways, you know, around that. But, um, I, and I'm certainly not an advocate for ever doing that. But yeah, that just adds to the burden, right, once you've graduated. Moving to Europe helps you get much better pricing on all that stuff. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I had a friend complaining in Germany that his tuition went up and it went up to 800 euros a semester or a, a year. And that inclu- included public transit. But this goes back to the question you know, we were talking about earlier, which is that what are some of the systems that need to be set up differently? Like when we talk about trying to solve this problem, this isn't about whether or not a kid should go to this kind of college or that kind of college or four year versus two year versus whatever. It's really about what is the role? What is society's perspective? What is the United States perspective on education? And how 
important this plays in skilling and reskilling the future, right? We've talked now about the fact that every single job on the planet is going to be reskilled. So we need to rethink what learning looks like and how we make learning accessible. And there's been a lot of conversations around universal basic income, but then there's another conversation around universal basic mobility, right? Giving people access to free transportation, giving people access to free education, giving people access to some of the building blocks that we need to be able to have a strong and healthy society. So I think there's a whole lot of questions that we should have around this and ways in rebuilding it and looking at places around the world that might be doing it more effectively than we are. The system we have right now is just not sustainable. In a lot of ways. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a bit crazy, but we talked about this a little before and I want to I piggyback back to it. And it was, we were talking about education. We were talking about silos. I've got my math class, my science class, history. I don't really think about anything in between. And when you look at society as a whole, we kind of have the same deal. We got our doctors, our lawyers, our politicians, our futurists, and we don't really think about anything in between. And we get confused why things don't work well. Well, and inside organizations, right? We've got this business unit versus that process unit versus that sort of operations thing versus that so-and-so thing. And inside organizations, they aren't actually collaborative and, and more and more siloed. And so, yes, that is a giant concern. I, I, there's many ways we can answer that question. Which question do you want? How, how do we address that? How do we make systems thinking almost the default? Because I feel like it has to be the default. Well, question. it's an interesting thing. We've been preaching it, right? And we've been trying to talk about this for a long time, but and maybe not a long time, but for me, it feels like a long time. And I think maybe some of that thinking is starting to kind of permeate. But I will actually say what's interesting is technology will then actually force it. When you start to build, one of the things that I'm involved in is with an artificial intelligence startup here in Austin that we spend a lot of time thinking about how AI is transforming organizational structures. And I did a panel at South by Southwest around this. And one of the things you quickly see is that for AI to be successful inside an organization, it has to permeate across those boundaries. And uh, it sort of forces people to rethink what it means to be in silos. And so in some ways, I guess maybe the tool will start to knock down those walls more so than the humans will necessarily, you know, just on their own decide that they want to do it. Because the only way you're going to get to effective solution is to be able to have integration across those units. So I'm hopeful that that becomes part of it. And then as that thinking becomes more comfortable, then they'll start to want to do it you know, more regularly. I will also just say back to tools. We don't often have really good tools that allow people to collaborate really effectively um, and be able to share vision into you know, both work and KPIs and metrics and whatever it is we want. So I'm also always on the hunt for much better collaborative tools to give people a sense of comfort as they start to break down those silos. Do you think it's the tools or do you think it's the desire though? Is it humanity kind of, we like to simplify things, tiger, bad, very good. And the simpler we can make it, the more likely we are to survive. Yeah, but what we're starting to see is that the, the well, I will say many of the things that we have thought are really great structures for survival are turning actually out to be the things that are creating the greatest risk, right? As the world gets more complicated and as it grows faster, those, these, those systems just don't hold up. And there's a whole bunch of them from a regulatory framework that I don't think is going to hold up anymore under the you know, deluge and the volume and the speed at with which things need to be assessed to boards of directors that I think only meet quarterly, you know, and hope that they've got enough insight to be able to solve a really complex problem to this idea of thinking in silos. And so I think what people are finding is to solve the problem that they need to solve, they need to actually, you know, hook up more. So I gave a talk at one point to a bunch of HR executives that were separate from the legal and compliance executives. And what you actually realize is that those two departments should not be separate departments anymore right? There's so many workplace issues and opportunities and questions and things that come up that are really crossing boundaries between those two things. So uh, if we continue to stay in those silos, we will not actually be able to address the problems or the, the potential opportunities. And so I think people are naturally gravitating a little bit more comfortably to each other and realizing, but the problem is the structures 
that are in place for compensation, for training, for, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it when you're assessed? Um, at reports. Yeah. Re- yeah, reports slash, uh, there's something else I'm trying to figure out, like your, uh, ah, the word I can't think of. Thank God I'm not sitting in those organizations doing them anymore. But uh, I'll just need to get redesigned. And that's a lot of work, right? So you have to have people that are willing to go in and redesign those systems. They were designed to solve one problem and that problem no longer either exists or is outdated. And now someone needs to go and redesign how this is supposed to work. If I was going to describe kind of your big idea or vision in one phrase, I would say it's pretty much go big or go home. That seems to be my understanding. What's the deal and why is it so important to actually think and try to go big? Well, when I say go big, I frame it through a lens that has nothing to do with scale and doesn't have to do with like necessarily giant footprint as much as it has to do with full integrity. Like really, you know, showing up with all the resources that you have to play the game as big as you can to make the world better, right? I really do believe that we are here to ensure a safe and uh, inclusive future for everyone. And so when you work in silo or you work in incrementality, it doesn't allow you to actually bring full resources to it. So when you work here and you forget about the sustainable side of the equation, or you do it here and you don't think about some of the, you know, societal implications from a health and wellness, whatever those perspectives are, you're just creating more problems. And so when we're asking people to think big, we are asking them to think systemically and to think about how these things all, you know, connect with one another. Um, we did a big project with, um, you know, one of the largest global beverage brands in the world. And uh, it was really interesting to sit in their offices and their big, you know, HQ talking about the difference between being uh, a holistic strategist versus being an allopathic strategist, right? And they're so used to having people come in and just do this one little piece of the puzzle and ignoring all the rest. And what we really do is look through the, you know, how all these things are connected and we build really congruent plans and structures. And I think that's where the big fault is. It's really easy to see where there are big incongruences between what people say they want to create and what they're actually incentivizing or building or set up to do. And so how do we help find the, the blockages and create more flow, if you will, across all those different things? So play big to me is about looking at it from that perspective and, and doing it with tremendous intention to make the world better. What about from a societal and governmental perspective? We were talking about silos and I, I bet you 50% of politicians in the US are some type of white male that studied law. Something super boring and very niche. Their that, dad did, right? Which was their dad and their dad's dad. And they, yeah, they like to talk with big words, unless it's Trump. But in terms of what they're actually focusing on and who they are, they're not a very decent subset of humanity. How do we fix that if systems thinking is what we need? Well, first of all, you're seeing way more um, diverse people running for office now, right? There's this interesting uh, dance that I was talking about between dark and light. And that as things start to feel really, really dark, it actually creates this opportunity for sort of the opposite energy to bounce out. And so as much as we were frustrated by the presidential election and the way some of those things went down, what it did is it spurred a whole bunch of people to go run for office that didn't think that they historically would have been qualified to. And they're like, heck, if he can do it, I can do it, right? And or they need me. And so you saw this tremendous like exponential raise in women that were running for office or people of color that are running for office, younger people that are running for office. So I would say the good news is that it's creating a bit of a shift. I am a, you know, a giant fangirl of AOC. Whether or not I always agree with her policies and her politics, not necessarily 100%, but I love her moxie. And I love the way that she's going in and questioning absolutely everything and changing the whole way in which we even have visibility into what's happening and, and you know, the way that she shares what she shares. And so I think the more that we've got kind of that voice in there, the more that shakes things up. I mean, the whole reason I think that I believe that Trump got elected is because people wanted to have a change in the system, right? They wanted, they didn't like the way it was sort of bureaucratically run before and they wanted to have a big, huge blow, you know, shake up my dad. That's why he voted for him. Yeah. 
And so uh, whether it's a Trump version or an AOC version or any other kind of version, I think we're going to see a big shift in that. So what the issue is for me is the power structure that current exists, how they're trying so hard to hold on to what they've got and uh, aren't making room for that change. And I think that will be part of their big demise. They aren't adaptive. I would definitely agree with that. It was a big, it was a big F you to kind of the world and the system. But in terms of why it changed, it's interesting. You brought up the AOC comparison, but all of the adjectives and descriptions you used for her, if you were to use the same description, but make it in a negative connotation, that's what Trump did. And that, that's why he was, that's why he was so effective. How does this, does this change politics so that anyone can do anything? And what are... Well, I think there's a difference between the mechanism that people use and the intentionality of what people use, right? So just because they yes. both have figured out how to use that mechanism doesn't mean that they're bringing the same intention. I'm not, I'm not comparing them in that way. I'm just saying it's, inter- it's interesting that... In well, she figured ways. out how to use the same tools and the same game and the same whatever. So, yay. I don't think, I don't, I don't think that that is bad. Right. Um, there are two guys who wrote a book called New Power a couple of years ago. Uh, maybe it came out last year, actually. That talks a lot about how to uh, how power is shifting in a hyperconnected world, and it can be used for both dark and for light. So I think that the reality is that there is a shift in that, and I think that she's figured out a way to use it really. I think smartly. Um, I think you know people could disagree with that, but I think that overall, I think that regardless of whether again you believe in her politics or not, the way that she is influencing people is a part of a wave that's going to continue to get grow bigger. Early on in the internet, SEO wasn't all that well designed. And I remember there was one company, one website, and they became incredibly successful. And they basically just did things to get themselves sued. So that they said outlandish things and had slander claims left and right. But what happens, the news channels have to make stories about them. And because you have these high linking, uh, high authority sites pointing to it, all of the traffic from everything goes there. It doesn't matter that's bad traffic. It's just tons of traffic. And that's kind of what we saw as well with Trump. We have an advertising model that incentivizes engagement. Well, if I tell you something horrible, you're going to click on it because it's something horrible. What do we do when there's that system there? We're able to have these little updates in how Google works because Google can change the algorithm. But democracy is kind of stuck how it is. You think? Or could we build a better tool? I go back to again, a better tool that changes the game entirely. So I do have friends that are working on what sometimes people describe as post-blockchain technology, which we would describe more as alternative blockchain, but a way of being able to structure the internet so that we are able to hold on to our own data and be able to do build interoperable apps that don't require ever going through a server and don't require an API structure, aren't built around uh, the application that are actually really built about the human, that can completely restructure everything. Right. If I get to turn the internet inside out and I get to put the human at the center of it, so many of, I think, the problems that we currently see and the way that things are set up could potentially be completely redesigned and recalibrated and uh, work a whole lot better. In a, in a sense. But if you, try to, if you try to redesign at least the U.S. government, that's treason and you're going to jail. It doesn't matter how good your intentions are. It doesn't matter that that's well, how- I'm not saying that I'm necessarily redesigned. I'm not going in and like, you know, toppling the government. I'm putting in structures in place that allow people to communicate in a much more effective way that don't allow for the corrosiveness that we see entering in uh, to some of the structures that we're using to get information or to be able to share and connect with other people. And so if I, and you talked about the money side of it, right? If I'm able to build applications that don't rely on an advertising model that then are, you know, by definition exploitive, that changes a bunch of opportunities, don't you think? That's why I start to think that we could start to shift society. And if you shift society, then you shift government. I'm not saying that you necessarily, you know, I'm not advocating that we, you know, 
Uh, although I'm going to have to say I'm a giant fan of the um, American revolutionaries. And when you really read their history, you realize how brave those people were and what a giant risk they took to build the United States. So, uh, but I'm not advocating that. Yeah, I don't have a plan for that. If I had a plan, maybe I'd go execute it. I don't have that plan. Mine is really much more advocating for the technologies and for the social structures that hold people better than the current ones do. I just know when your back's against the wall, you just start shooting. That's a, I think that's a T.I. Sure. Well, the big concern we have is that with income inequality and education inequality and health inequality, that you know, at some point there could be that kind of reaction, right? And wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to go to that place of extreme in order to be able to like design something um, more effective? Interesting. I was talking about something else. I was talking about politicians because they're actually the ones who control it. And if they realize they lose power, but it's interesting because you do have the, that dynamic there on both sides. Well, and that's what I was saying about it, is that, that what I would call the patriarchy, right? That it is, um, it's not surprising. We should not even be remotely surprised that they're holding on to this with every last breath and using every possible, you know, a tool in their arsenal to be able to hold on to it. And I just think at some point it won't be effective anymore because this other stuff around it and surrounding it was built so differently and will be that much more effective. But, you know, the question I think you raised at the very beginning is, are people willing to do that? How It requires more agency. It requires not just letting someone else take care of the problem and assuming that there's sort of, you know, again, a paternalistic structure or some other thing that I can just lean into and they can take care of it all for me. We're seeing that even, uh, again, on the enterprise level when it comes to reskilling and retraining people, right? There's a certain sense that we have baked out of people a sense of agency and somehow we need to figure out how to pull that back, right? Infuse it again. It's interesting that you say you like to call it the patriarchy and I see that a lot, but let's, let me push back. Is it, is it beneficial to term it patriarchy where it's clearly male or is that something where it kind of just alienates people, even if that's how it functionally is. I hesitated before I said that word because I don't don't think of it necessarily in that negative. A lot of of people do though. So, I mean... You know, can you give me an alternative? What would be a better word? We could come up with any bullshit word. (laughs) Google Google did a great job of it, but kind of that when you create something... Uh, Mandela did a great job of this. He gets released from prison. What's the first thing you probably want to do if you've been in prison to, like 27 years? You want to go kill those bastards who put you in there for no reason. You want to screw them and take their lands. You want to do all this stuff. But he found a way to make everybody happy by not attacking a group. And I think, yeah, I think that if you do that, it works better. That's just, it, I totally yeah. agree. So, But I would also argue back, right, that maybe the vocabulary isn't right, but there is a um, framing that is more the way you described it, you know, the, the antagonistic, the competitive, the aggressive approach. And then there's one that is much more benevolent and collaborative and inclusive. And so they're often named as masculine versus feminine, right? And whether or not that is fair or not fair, we try and put some sort of naming on this cluster of behaviors versus that cluster of behaviors. And so, uh, and I don't think that they are specific to a man or a woman. They're just described as those kinds of behaviors. And I actually think that there's room for both. I really do think that the tension between the two is important. But okay, I take it back that it, I, I will. Um, oh, it's, that, was, that, wasn't, that wasn't at you. That was just at people. No, no, general. no. I think it's fair. And I don't want to propagate you know, an old terminology if that doesn't help us. I guess what I, I do think that there is uh, a paternalistic I will stick with. Patriarchy, not. But paternalistic I will. I think there is a sense of people wanting to go to Papa because he's going to go take care of everything. And I think that's a bit of what has made Trump successful is because people don't want to dive into the complexity and don't necessarily feel prepared to take on the agency of it. And so they just want to go to somebody who says it's all going to be simple. I'll bring back coal and your jobs are going to come back. And you know it's going to be like the good old days. And we're going to make America great again. And I think that's a really comforting narrative for many people. 
And so the question is, how can we offer a counter narrative that doesn't feel scary and like so much work? Yeah, we kind of all want McDonald's and the, the six-minute abs program, right? We want it to work, but it doesn't work. I am so, doing a five-minute arms exercise thing these days. So, you know, yeah. you know. <laughs> it's very, very effective. So, in terms of uh, – this is something we talked a little bit about, and it's kind of something we were dancing around now. Women and diversity in tech. It's a, it's a tangent off of this. How do you see the industry in terms of where you are? And any ideas in terms of what exactly went wrong or how we could try to start changing that? Well, I'm going to sort of take it, I think, from a, a different perspective, right? One of the things I talk a lot about is how we manage permanent ambiguity, a place in which there are no easy answers, and we don't have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you'll never know for sure what the right thing is to do, right? But you've got to still figure out a way to act. And so I think about strategies that various either organizations or people have developed in order to be able to navigate that more successfully. And one of the strategies is having a more diverse group, right? The more diversity that you can bring into whatever that, that the group or team or organization is, the better the outcome. We just make better decisions that way. So what we're starting to see is things like you know, more and more data come around that. You see California pass a law that say women need to be on boards because not just because they're trying to be benevolent, but because people, boards that have women on them have better you know, fiduciary outcomes. And so I think part of it is people waking up to the fact that more diversity creates more resilience, creates more success. And then the question is, you know, what is disincentivizing organizations to do that either socially or financially? And so how do we break through some of that? And I don't feel like I have all the answers. I do think that tech is uniquely biased in its own, like somehow that system. You know, I've worked in a lot of different industries, um, including high tech. And then I would argue the place where I found most sexist was high tech, right? People who tell really bawdy jokes in a board meeting. Like, why? Right? Um, or make, you know, you know, just stupid comments and literally the team building culture workshop, you know, that they think is funny and really is, is very not funny. I have to, I have to imagine, oh, I have to imagine it's an inverse of the amount of success. Um, so they have less success with women and therefore. Well, um, that's one, that's one theory for sure. Right. That, that, that it's sort of a very nerdy, you know, never was like the captain of the football team kind of person who is controlling a lot of that environment and sort of taking out. I, I, don't, I, I don't, that one, I wish I had more insight into be able to send all the systemic inputs into that. I just go back to and say, each of us have a responsibility when we see it or are part of it to be, to help change it. I will also say that, you know, where I'm, there's again, this tension between wanting to call it out and wanting to be hair triggered about every single thing that happens and creating then even more of an environment where people feel like they can't be authentic and they can't be real. I created a, a TEDx event with high school kids a year or two ago, and the kids named it Discomfort Zone because they felt like they wanted there to be a space to be able to have more difficult conversations and to be able to disagree more effectively than we are currently given to. They saw that the, you know, the person from Google who had written the 10-page memo where he felt like there was reverse discrimination and then you know, gets called out and gets fired. And they just couldn't figure out how that happened. Right. And so the question is, how do we create environments where we can actually have a less toxic conversation around it and are able to um, get to better empathy and understanding and then, you know, understand cognitive bias more effectively? There's a lot of training and awareness building that needs to happen at the same time that the people who are controlling the power are so afraid of giving it up. So there's a lot kind of working both for and against this conversation. But I just think we have to keep trying. I mean, you know, particularly the place where I think I'm most. There's two places I'm really freaked out about it. One is in the technologies that continue to grow need to have women as part of it because those are the things that are going to feed the economy, right? As those technologies grow and become more and more a part of our productivity, you got to make sure that women are included in part of that, as well as people of different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different curiosities, different education you know, um, backgrounds, et cetera, and AI. 
you know, AI cannot be designed by a very homogenistic group, which right now is primarily white and Indian men. And um, how do we ensure that there is more perspective brought into that? So there's a thing called equal AI that's really uh, working very hard to raise that uh, awareness and, and bring more diverse people into the AI work and into the conversation. And I'm a big advocate of what they're trying to do. So right now, I'm just supporting the people who are raising awareness, I guess. And what's a little ironic is as we get further and further towards automation, we're going to kill many traditional male jobs and only have a lot of female jobs left if you want to label things in in this way where there'll be much less logical need and much more creative and personal touch. I think the capacities, well, I don't know about the jobs. So when you look at nursing and you look at teaching and you look at, um, there's that, another one. That's what I meant, jobs. Yeah, but I'm not sure. Like, again, like, because I think that technology is going to come in and change a lot of those jobs as much as they're going to change trucking. You know, they're also going to change retail, which women are very much a part of. So I don't know that I, I actually did this analysis one day where I was trying to figure out what the percentage of the jobs are going to go away more male versus female. And I think there's, you know, not so much the jury's out, but I think everyone's going to be affected and everyone's going to be impacted. The question is, we're moving to whatever the job is, even CEO of a company that is about being more empathetic and more compassionate and more humanistic and thinking again about the systemic impact of what it is that they're making and the decisions that they're doing and shifting some of the key metrics around how it is that we orient. So I was um, speaking this week to a big conference on procurement, right? So the people inside organizations that make all the purchasing decisions, that's a giant group to, to you know, be able to talk to because they are shaping the future by every decision they make around procurement. And one of the big things is, is ROI the only metric that we should be looking at, right? Or should we be thinking about sustainability? Should we be thinking about, you know, some of the um, fair trade practices, et cetera, that are, you know, human trafficking, there's a whole bunch of layers of things that go into procurement. So I would argue everyone needs to be more sensitive to some of these topics, and that they aren't necessarily male jobs and female jobs, I think. Jobs are going to go away and people need to be more thoughtful. (laughs) You hit that last one on the hammer and that's, is ROI the indicator that we need? I would say GDP is very broken. The guy who designed it never wanted it to be a metric of success. I think it'd be much more interesting to take a GDP efficiency perspective. So the quality of life in terms of what is purchased and services that are bought and sold divided by the number of hours worked by individuals so that you can have progress by people working less and having the same. Yeah. Well, first of all, I could not possibly agree more that GDP is not an effective metric, nor is job creation, right? I went to a Chamber of Commerce lunch a few years ago and listened to, you know, a very homogenous group of of economists get up one after the other after the other talking about what their predictions were for the following year. And the only two metrics they used were GDP and job creation. I felt like, wow, we're working our way to neither of those things being as relevant as they need to be. GDP doesn't measure so much of what is happening inside society that creates value. And job creation is something that we may or may not have. uh, It it may go the other direction, which means that we need to build scaffolding then for a more successful post-work society. And so what would that look like? And what would that feel like? So I do think they've got completely wrong yardsticks. And I don't think that people have necessarily come up with a you know, more effective one. So you've, you know, that's a, a great option that you just mentioned, right? Um, when you look at uh, the countries with the highest well-being, we certainly see that they're not always correlated. To, actually, even in the United States, the communities that are correlated to highest well-being are not the ones with highest income. Um, oh, yeah. They're ones that are connected more to community. So what we're seeing is community actually trumps income or affluence or something else. And so the question is, how do you scale that up on a national or international level to measure connectedness and community and well-being and a sense that people feel like they you know, are plugged in and have a sense of purpose? And is that the role that we all have in the society to build? 
And now a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Brand Crowd, an offshoot of Design Crowd, a company that we love and helped get our podcast design covers for disruptors. Now, if you guys need a logo, if you're starting a business, or if you want to have a better brand logo and presence, maybe you designed something terrible in the future or terrible in the past, and you just need to redo that and get something incredible made. Well, here's how you do it. You go to disruptors.fm slash brand crowd. That's B-R-A-N-D-C-R-O-W-D. They'll generate thousands of logos for you from designers around the world. You don't pay anything. It's totally free. And if you find one that absolutely knocks your socks off, then you go, you buy that bad boy, and suddenly you have an incredible brand for your business. Again, that's disruptors.fm slash brand crowd for more details and to see what they come up with for you and your business. Hope you enjoy. Now back to the episode. Rushkoff had a brilliant idea when he was on the program. If you were to just invert the tax structure for capital gains and distributions. Right now, when corporations make money and want to give it back to their shareholders, they pay a fortune in taxes. When shareholders hold on to stocks, they can sell the stocks and pay way less in taxes, which incentivizes companies to get as big as effing possible. That's the only thing that matters because you make more money after taxes, which is why you have something that has to have a lack of an asymptote and go to infinity, but nothing actually goes to infinity except cancer. Yes. <laughs> First of all, I'm a big fan of Doug's. I think that his work is, uh, Douglas's work is great. His thinking is very solid. I think that the question is, I, I don't, again, I don't have an answer. I haven't gone through and looked at it the way that he has, but I will sit there and say, systemically, these things, we, we've built incentives inside Wall Street, inside markets, inside government, inside schools, inside all kinds of things that I think are just cattywampus, as we could use a very technical term to describe. You know, they're, they're just creating the wrong behaviors and the wrong things. And so I think if you change the incentive structure somehow, then it changes all the behaviors. And so the question is, who's smart enough to think through what the better and more effective incentive structures are than who's willing to fight for them? And, and or to what extent is the market itself doing that? What's really interesting is to see billionaires right now advocating for greater income, uh, dist- you know, more fa- uh, uh, fair income distribution um, or more systems that hold people well. And the question is, why? You know? Um, and you're seeing a backlash against really, you know, outrageous salaries and and um, and and corporate structures. And again, it goes back to we have this term we call cultural acupuncture in our team. And it's really about the fact that if I do my thing here and you do your thing here and everybody else kind of does it, it starts to radiate change and it creates the flip. And so I don't think again it's one thing that's necessarily going to do that. But I think if you change the corporate track structure at the same time that you're changing you know, the metrics for success at the same time you're changing people's mindset and at the same time you're changing education, who knows, it starts to create the, the big shift that we want to see. Let me, let me play out a devil's advocate situation. So in law, it's good enough for you to be a citizen, for you to be in the jury. Yet we elect people to government. What if we were just to have a random government? You know, what? I actually, um, I wrote about that at one point or read about this idea of, you know, kind of what is it like, uh, so there was select, something about selection, right? About the fact that you would just draw X amount of citizens in each year that they would serve uh, in, in government official positions. And you're starting to see, there's, there's a name for that. I forget what it's called. Um, and you're starting to see that being played out in small groups of you know, decision makers and, and policy structures, as well as big governmental ones. And I say, why not? You know, it's certainly what, what, one of the big things that I think is, is you know, a, a, a structure that currently is creating a lot of the havoc is campaign financing. Right. So if I was going to go fix the one thing that I was going to go fix, I would figure out how to not do that, where people have to raise millions of millions of dollars to be trying to get elected to office. It biases, it puts a bias the minute you start to put your name out there that you want to go run for office. And then it creates all kinds of, again, distortion and corrosion in ways that I think are unhealthy. And so 
that as a possible you know thing where you just you just you know wipe all that out completely and uh, trust that there's enough smart people in a collective that they would be able to get to some thing. Now the question is. Are people really interested in that role? Would they really, you know, um, bring their full attention and, you know, background to it? Um, does it become its own kind of weird cronyist thing where you put people in office and they don't really give a shit and they, you know, don't fulfill their obligations? So I don't know how you incentivize um, people to do it well, but um, I'm certainly up for, you know, looking at alternatives. Just tell them otherwise we'll go back to what we got today. I'm pretty sure <laughs> I'm pretty sure most people would be much happier with that. I don't know if there's at least a self selection pool that you you draw from as opposed to necessarily everybody, like, you know, voter registration. But I do think it, it is again, I, I there's a great TED talk on that topic. And I'm trying to remember the person's name, but you can Google it. And uh, I thought it was very provocative, certainly worth looking at. Definitely worth looking at. So Singularity University, you've done some lecturing there. What's it like working with those guys? Um, I, you know, again, um, actually, I can, can you hand me that book? Um, I'm a big fan of Ray Kurzweil and Pierre Diamandis. And I love the fact that they wanted to create, I kind of have a post-it note sitting in my office that I wrote at one point saying I wanted to create the Institute for Accelerated Understanding. And it came from a frustration that if I think the world is round and you think the world is flat, meaning, you know, enterprise versus me, I can't go build a solution that makes sense because you're still worried that you're going to go over the edge, right? And this has happened over and over again with companies that we were privileged enough to, to go in and do work with, but we saw a very, very different view of the future than they did. And I was like, damn it, if we could just figure out a way to accelerate their understanding about what's happening, we could build more effective solutions. And I feel like that's what Singularity has really been designed to do. They are you know, committed in every way possible to help government and business leaders understand the implications of these technologies and not use them to build yet another social media app but to use them to solve problems for a billion people or more around really grand challenges. So I think they've set it up. So it's not just about the technology. It's also about the, you know, the deployment of that technology to solve really big problems. And just today in the mail, I got another uh, book from Ray Kurzweil called uh, The Chronicles of Danielle. And it's all about how to build a better planet and uh, done in sort of novel form. This book weighs like 30 pounds. Like, I don't know what paper like Ray has printed it on, but it feels very substantial. And uh, so I love that they're kind of pulling out all different tools. I love it because I get a chance to be, you know, in rooms or on stage with other really provocative thinkers that are challenging the status quo. And I love that we have an opportunity and uh, to go in front of audiences that are 12 people big to, you know, 1000 people big and open up a bigger conversation. So I'm privileged to be part of that singularity team. When you talk about the future, how do you avoid over promising or overselling? So that's one thing like I would say, race curves while talks a pretty big game. And it's kind of been it's kind of been a similar game for the past twenty years in terms of when the singularity was coming. It's always been in twenty years. Which there's there's pros and con there's pros and cons to that approach. But in general, how do you think about the fact that A, people that are talking about this type of stuff are most heavily invested in it? And B, you don't want to overpromise, but you also need to move people towards a better future. I mean, there's a lot of tensions that exist in the world and on the planet, right? And one of the tensions is to what extent do I jump in too early versus have I jumped in too late? And that's certainly the thing that every business leader on the planet is trying to sort out and trying to figure out. I think that singularities go back to cultural acupuncture. What singularities role? Singularities role is to provoke us into understanding that these technologies are real, that we often misunderstand the impact because they're exponential and they go in a very different curve than linear. And so we either discount them or dismiss them or think that somehow they're not going to matter. And we even get disappointed by them because they didn't happen as fast as the hype said that they were going to happen. And then all of a sudden, they take off and they change everything. And I do believe that that is the way it works, right? And so I think that it, uh, I appreciate that they're out there trying to raise awareness around that and appreciation for that. 
I think corporate marketing departments end up a big part of that, right? We get frustrated that, you know, someone like IBM Watson is able to tell such a good story around what's able to, you know, be possible on, you know, big scale AI, but the AI technology doesn't necessarily keep up with it yet. It doesn't mean that it won't. And it doesn't mean it can't solve some of those problems. The question is whether or not has the story gotten ahead of the technology and its ability to do that. So I just think that you know, we're human. And you know, part of it is for us to sort of sort out what's bullshit and what's not and, and take a bet on what we think the timing of something is going to be. Uh, the thing I advocate for, for the audiences that I'm privileged enough to speak to is not to sit around waiting for the killer app. You know, it's just happening too fast that by the time we figure out, oh, mobile really is going to, you know, be big or wow, the cloud is really going to be big. Um, you probably have missed a tremendous opportunity. So it's about building structures that allow you to test things in a more constrained way. So you get some learning about how these things are going to impact or not impact or what they can do and what they can't do. You know, the biggest hype right now for us is blockchain because blockchain promises a whole bunch of stuff. But actually, when you go in to build it, it's too cumbersome and too labor, I mean, energy intensive and too like, I don't know, but like I just feel like heavy in the way that it's built to be able to do some of the things that could really you know, the world will need. And so, but the good news is, it's opening up people to a conversation around the decentralized or distributed web. And as they start to go here and realize they can't solve it that way, they'll be looking for alternatives. And we hopefully have one that we think, you know, that we're um, excited to be building. So I think hype can also, you know, work for you. I definitely agree on that with, well, I mean, we've definitely seen that with blockchain. If you got people excited about it, it makes your excitement more valuable, but you also think it's good for them. So it's kind of like religion with money attached to it. It's, well, uh, yeah. And again, I think of blockchain bigger than Bitcoin, right? And yeah. thinking more about how can we um, build completely different structures around identity and traceability and coordination, et cetera, that you know, a different kind of web would allow us to do. And so if uh, I think the problem is, again, we always get to narratives that are really simple and short and small because we like to be able to have those little contained stories. And then we have a very limited understanding about what's possible. But it allows people to at least enter the conversation. And then you know, hopefully they will continue to scaffold their understanding until it gets to a place where they can actually do something really meaningful with it. So um, I have a lot of faith in humanity's curiosity and ability to build good things. I, I think it's going to be a transformational technology, but possibly just as an infrastructure. We'll see. In terms of optimism, you are, you are very much a tech optimist, but what are you pessimistic about? What are the biggest worries you have? What technologies or trends have you scared? Well, I think that, again, um, mental health and anxiety is my, my biggest thing that I'm really kind of worried about right now, both on a youth level and on an adult level. On an adult level, I feel like we've got more infrastructure and more ability to be able to try and manage some of that. I think on a youth level, we should be horrified that those numbers continue to climb around anxiety, depression, and suicide for even the youngest kids. Like that as a society should be like the biggest alarm bell that says something's not working here. Right. And, uh, and I'm also frustrated that, again, we make the narrative, let's point it to social media and say they're spending too much time on their devices. That's what's causing the problem. And I, com again, would not completely disagree that that isn't the cause of the problem. And uh, A, we're expecting kids to um, have enough you know, self-control, whatever, to push against billion dollar machines that are designed to be addictive. Right. And so we hold kids responsible instead of the companies that have built the, you know, the very addictive apps. We've also handed kids phones and iPads at restaurants since they were three and told them to entertain themselves, right? And around them, they are now also having to kind of navigate climate change, which they're very, very scared about, right? A transformative work and economy that they don't really feel like they've got their arms and, and understanding around. And you talked earlier about parents that freak them out and make them really nervous and worried about what's po you know, what, how they should prepare for that future. They are, uh, you know, 
school violence is not insignificant. Whether or not it happens to your school or not, oh my God, happens in a place. Yeah. and here's the biggest issue. They can't opt out. Right. I can choose not to go to an outdoor concert. I can choose not to go to whatever, you know, a place where I feel threatened. Kids can't say I don't want to go to school today. Right. They have zero agency and they have zero tools to prepare themselves when they're in that environment against it. It happened again at UNC yesterday. You know, it's interesting. We had a we had a researcher on the program and he he dove specifically into mental health and neurochemical and specifically uh, nutrient imbalances. They studied 50 of the past school shooters. 86% were recently put on SSRI. And the reason why it triggers it is there's uh, essentially SSRI. It prevents your body from recycling the serotonin. It keeps bouncing around. Well, when you're putting people on that who already have a system where their serotonin is not going where it should be in the right time, you're dumping fuel on a fire that's already burning, which is why people come out they come out shooting and not feeling like someone. And it's incredible that they aren't doing any type of screening for this kind of stuff. It's a, oh, fuck. Right, right. But so again, you've got kids that don't feel really well held in a system that isn't taking good care of them for all those different reasons, right? At the same time, they've got a breakdown in all kinds of social structures. You've got, you know, kids who are not taking part-time jobs anymore. So they don't feel that sense of agency again. And that sense of like, feeling good about who they are and what they are and building that kind of community. We see kids breaking, you know, not going to churches and, and being part of church communities anymore. We see, you know, families getting smaller. We see a whole bunch of other breakdowns that I would argue kids are going to social media or using those tools in some ways to sort of soothe themselves as opposed to necessarily feel as though they're feeling outcasted and, and bullied. I don't discount that that does happen there, but I don't think that that is the whole thing that's causing all these issues that's going on for kids. So anyway, you asked me about like what it is I'm most fearful of. That is probably the thing I'm most fearful of. And then the second is that we build really biased AI algorithms and solutions, and no one's really checking that and understanding what the implications of that are. So when I go and talk to, again, audiences, they're frustrated about what they call the oopsies, you know, the whoopses, like from the Facebook or whatever. I'm like, baby, we haven't seen anything yet. You know what I mean? That could be so much more dramatic. At the same time that I think that those same technologies can help us, you know, create personalized genomic medicine. And I don't really worry that I'm going to die of cancer in my lifetime. I really do think that's going to get solved. You know, I think we're going to be able to predict earthquakes. I think we're going to be able to have all kinds of predictive analytics that challenge our current understanding about how things work. I get really excited about what's possible with all this stuff. I just want to make sure that we're putting it into really responsible hands and that we're thinking about the choices that we make when we build the things that we build. And I've been in environments and I've been in boardrooms or, or corporate workrooms in which people don't always take that responsibility as seriously as I wish they did. So in Nazi Germany, everyone was just doing their jobs. Well, and here I would argue everyone's just saying, hey, you know what, I'm passing the buck to somebody else. That's not my job to go sort out. So we were building an application that would be used um, for a bank for a call center. Like when someone calls in the call center at a financial institution, we would know all this stuff about their history and their background and some of the choices they've made recently. So we know that what, what they might be calling about and can be you know, able to offer a better solution. That's awesome if you're doing that to empower me. It's horrible if you're using it to exploit me right? That's a very vulnerable conversation that we could be having. And if you're not doing it with my best interest in mind, but you're doing it with your best interest in mind, which is mostly, again, ROI driven, then you know it's just a giant breakdown. And so I suggested in that meeting that we label this thing in a way that signals that it should be done for the, you know, to serve people versus stock people. And I was pushed back. In that case, I will say by nine men in the room, I was the only woman, and said that that was not their job. That wasn't our choice to make. It was the end customer's choice to make. And I was considered Nancy's nanny state for having said that. And I was like, I, this is nothing about being a nanny state. This is about building a culture of trust 
And if I'm going to put these things into the marketplace, ensure that people feel as though we're taking good care of them, business will be better if we do that. We will actually continue to thrive and grow if we do that. We will get killed if we don't. And so I think getting people, again, just to think about that in a bigger way is playing big. I saw an incredible cartoon and it was two bankers or two somethings sitting there on a a pile of money as the world burned. And one says to the other, at least for a while there, we maximized shareholder value. And it's, I think in a lot of ways, it is that. My my analogy with the the Nazi thing was more following AI blindly. Let's put extra black guys in, uh, in prisons because you know what? That's what our system says. They're more likely to be there. So I don't, let's not think about things. Let's just do what it tells us. There's a lot of, there's a lot of risk in that. There's a lot of reward in AI as well, though. There's incredible things. That well, they're totally. And I, and I was about to say, too, I think that what's also exciting is that we also have more and more choices now than we've ever had before as individuals about how we want to run our lives, about how we want to do things. I think that there's a lot more that's been democratized as a result of these technologies. And the fact that I can work from home right now and just do this with you on my computer and not be in an office structure, you know, and have to work a certain number of hours to be able to feel as though I'm worthwhile on the planet. And uh, I just think there's a whole bunch of stuff that allows us to make really good empowered choices. I just think a lot of people don't take that agency yet. And uh, what can we do to inspire them to do so? Definitely agree. Speaking of the home office, that's what I'm doing as well. I dare you to try a standing desk for a bit. You know what? Here's the way I've done it is I do this here. I'll point, I have this giant, well, actually, I can't make, but I have this giant pile of books that I put my computer on top of and I sit and work like this. And a friend of mine was teasing me that I'm like, I'd use that instead of reading all the books, <laughs> that they just sort of infuse this knowledge. We put a very thoughtful stack of books together so that I'd be working on top of a really smart group of, you know, thinkers. And, uh, so giants. Right, exactly. One of these days I'll sit down and read, you know, Maria's book and Doug's book and, you know, all these other great books that I've got access to. But I've heard the secret is just to read the second chapter. Oh, is that it? Good. Apparently, that's kind of where the, the genesis of it is and everything else's story and other such. Uh, you know what? Well, and this is the problem, actually, because I'm trying to write a book, too, which is that you want to make sure that it's worth it past page 50, right? I've read books past page 50 and just get frustrated. It's the same example over and over again. And uh, so, I've been sort of been conditioned out of it. And I think, again, this goes back to democratization. I could spend all day reading stuff on the web or, you know, that gets mailed to my house that is really great. It's great, great content, right? I can watch your podcast. I can get all kinds of great insight from lots of different places. And so the question becomes, again, what do I want to pay attention to and how much time do I want to give to it? So, but yes, a standing desk would be, uh, I play around with it every once in a while. It's one of those things. If you do it for a bit, then it, it's hard to go back. So this has, been a, this has been an incredibly fun one. We've danced around a ton of topics. I got one last question for you, Nancy. And that's, if you had to leave people with one thing, a quote, a call to action, anything, what would it be and why before you tell them where to find you? Well, you know, where I love is Marion Williams' quote, where we have this question about attribution. I think it's Marion Williamson, which is, you're playing small, doesn't serve the world. When I read that at age 32, it changed everything about how it is that I show up on the planet. And it's become the centerpiece of what it is that I do with my work. It also then feeds into this other idea I have, which is that we all deserve to be you know, well held by each other, which is in environments that are respectful and compassionate and humane by the systems that we design. So we actually think about the systemic implications when we do things and by the technologies that we advance. And if we can hold that as our litmus, then we're making really, really good decisions as we move forward. Think big, play big. I like it. Where can people find you? Uh, NancyGiordano.com, PlayBigInc.com, LinkedIn, currently Twitter, although I'm having my own like you know existential crisis with uh, current social media platforms. <laughs> Just don't put it on your phone and don't ever read anything anyone sends to you and you're golden. Oh, there you go. Is that how it works? 
That's how, that's how it works. Facebook, I got a Facebook blocker. I don't see any of the feed. I only use it when I have to message people or drop things in groups and then I'm out. It's you don't want to touch that stuff. Well, we're way too many. Alternatives. You know, a friend of mine just took me through a platform today that they're building that is a cool alternative, Holochain's building alternative. So I'm, I'm trying to find the things that will kind of tunnel under the current stuff and, and allow us uh, better options. But in the meantime, I do spend a lot of time on LinkedIn or Twitter or, you know, various websites. So it's, it's like what we talked about before. It's uh, the alternatives are god awful until suddenly they turn the corner. Right. And I think they will. And I do think, again, I'm here to help advocate for as many of those as, as we can build. And because, again, those will only be effective if all of our friends and pals are on it, too. So as they emerge, we will become um, big, you know, uh, champions for them and share the word. But thank you for um, chatting and, and uh, uh, spurring me to think about all these things and challenging me. That's what we do. Get the listeners and the guests to think about cool stuff. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Matt. Take care. Yeah, Bye. Cheers. cheers, guys. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.